I'm in this new I'm in this new neighborhood now in Toronto that I don't really know very well. So today I'm out walking around trying to get to know where everything's located. I like it over here. I think living in the the last neighborhood I lived in, it's kind of underestimated what Toronto had to offer. Apparently lots of car horns honking. I live in a new place right on Queen Street East. Just uh, like literally 20 feet from the streetcar that goes by and I thought it would drive me nuts but actually it's kind of comforting. You know when the drivers pass one another they always ding the bell. I don't know why they do that. This neighborhood which is more dynamic makes me forgive whatever flaws the apartment has it's just a new place new neighborhoods new places lots of new starts and that's the theme of today's episode we're going to talk to a man named graham who is starting a new phase of his life uh there's lots of destiny in this episode if you're a destiny fan you're not going to want to miss this but let's start the show now Video games are fun, but they're more than fun. They do more for us than we give them credit for. Heavily Pixelated is a show that attempts to describe all the positive things that games do for us. I'm Scott C. Jones. Of all the time I spent with my family growing up, about 80% of it was centered around watching television. Every night we'd watch television. Maybe once a week, maybe twice a week, we'd see one character propose marriage to another character. I'd see this very handsome man get down on his knee and take out a tiny box, open it. Inside was the ring, and he'd look up at this woman like she was a goddess, and he'd say, will you marry me? And I'd see these two characters do this, and I'd look over at my parents, my dad. I don't think he's worn any shirts since like 1977. Um, He just always was hot, always had his shirt off, so his stomach was hanging out. He's drinking beer at one end of the couch. And at the other end of the couch, my mom in her nightgown and then her robe on top of her nightgown was eating bugles or whatever her snack was at the time. She's at the other end of the couch. And we're watching this incredibly romantic moment take place on TV. And I look at those two, you know, these people who hadn't said a civil word to one another in years. Gina, will you marry me? Yes, Mark. Yes. And I, I guess, you know, they must have gone through that moment at some point themselves. And the other thing I thought was, you know, at some point I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do that in my life. That's that's going to be something that I get to do. There was a girl in, in high school who I thought about all the time. Her name was Kathy. One night, my parents and I drove into Utica together, and we stopped 
at a fast food restaurant and went through the drive-thru. So we waited in the drive-thru line and I sat in the back seat looking out the window and it was winter and the sun had gone down. The restaurant uh, was positioned on a hill overlooking the city and lights stretched all the way to the horizon. Through the window in the back seat of the car, I saw a concrete table where I guessed people from the restaurant in warmer weather could enjoy their Whoppers. And that table with the sea of lights below looked romantic to me. I imagined a day when I'd bring Kathy here, and I pictured myself blowing into my hands for warmth in the city like a sea of candles down below. I'd ask Kathy to marry me, because Kathy was the one for me. It's so embarrassing to admit that. I really did think that that table in the middle of winter overlooking the city was romantic. I'm in my late 40s now, and I've never had that moment. I've never had that marriage proposal moment in my life. I sometimes wonder, honestly, if I'm missing out on something. I worry I'm not living a full life. Graham from Vancouver, he got his moment, definitely. And as you'll hear, he also got much more than he bargained for. Here's Graham. When I met Sarah, the very first date that we went on, I was struck by this girl. She's quirky, beautiful, charming, nerdy. We met on webdate.com. She listed Star Trek as one of her uh, things that she loved, and I went, we should probably have a conversation. I said, well, let me take you for dinner and a movie. We got to dinner, (laughs) and the conversation ran well past the movie. Uh, She's a classics major at... uh, Isaac Brock University, so I found that absolutely charming, just intellectual. Uh, I mean, she loves Star Trek. The downside was it was Star Trek Voyager. It was just this, this instant connection with someone that I felt very passionate about. For about a year and a half, we were long distance, and so we would play World of Warcraft together. So that was where we would meet up. We both played uh, undead characters. I was an undead warrior, she was an undead priest, and I would protect her and she would heal me. She would go and attack things, and I would taunt them off her. I I have this amazing screenshot that I took of both of our characters um, in the undead starting area, and there is an inn there, and both of them are sleeping side by side in the bed. And it's this beautiful screenshot that, you know, I will will never get rid of because that was one of the Kodak moment for us. After she moved out here, she wanted to go back to school to be a sign language interpreter and had asked me, do you think we can do it? And I looked at our finances, because I just, I just bought a house out here, bought a condo, which is not an inexpensive thing to do. And I went, we can, but I'm going to have to take on more work. Like, you're, if you're going to do this, you need to focus on school, and I need to focus on, on making money for us. So I did. I was working probably four or five jobs. While our relationship was strong, it felt like there was a bit of a disconnection growing. We'd always agreed that, you know, she's going to go back to school. We weren't going to worry about kids or marriage until that was done. And so we were at the Penny Arcade Expo. We were on a pub crawl, the Triwizard Drinking Championship. It was a Harry Potter-themed pub crawl where you would go and you would be assigned to one house and you'd have to challenge another house to a drinking duel. All of this in the name of the Child's Play charity. So yes, we were getting a little liquored, but we were doing it for a very good cause. We were at this one pub and a charity auction was taking place. It was for this tiny little wooden model of a TARDIS. This wooden model caught the eye of everyone I was with. All of a sudden, they started to bid it up. $5, $10, $20. $15, $20, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $30, $
and Sarah was bidding this thing up hard and fast. They got it up to $150, and I'm sitting there and I'm going, this is, this is my money. Right? Like, you're, you're bidding with my money. And she won the auction at $150, and I'm like, wow, I love Doctor Who. That's an expensive trinket, but okay, no problem. And I'm laughing my head off here at this point. He goes up and takes this thing, and then she begins this address to the crowd. She turns this thing on its side and cracks it open, and it's a ring box. Sarah drops to one knee. She looks up at Graham, and she mouths the words, Will you marry me? I was floored. And so happy. I hadn't even considered it. She was down on one knee, and I, I, I picked her up, and I, I, I kissed her. She looks at me and she says, does that mean yes? So of course it means yes. Nine months later in June of 2014, uh, we got married. I recognized the fact that I worked a lot. It wasn't work for the sake of work, it was work for the sake of putting a roof over our head and food on the table. You know, did I do that to the detriment of our relationship? Possibly. You know, I, I wanted to make sure that we weren't finding ourselves in debt. I also wanted to make sure that, you know, when it came time to enjoy ourselves or to have better things, that we weren't having to sacrifice that stuff. You know, at one point she was in Alaska and on a, on a placement for school, and she wanted a $400 pair of boots. A single income household should not be spending $400 on a pair of boots. She asked and I said, of course, go get them. So Graham's working a lot. Sarah is still in school and there's a growing tension in their relationship, a tension that, that wasn't there before they were married. I'm a very clean and tidy person. I like a clean and tidy house. I have a housekeeper that comes in every two weeks and she kind of laughs and says that I'm the easiest money she ever makes. Sarah is more of a lived-in person. She's okay with dishes in the sink. She's okay with the laundry piling up. Uh, she's okay with having no office and having papers piled on the kitchen table. It was basically just the two of us running in circles, doing and undoing each other's work. Uh, there were some issues of mental illness as well, so I wasn't really surprised when I heard the words, I want a divorce. I immediately said, no, <laughs> um, we're not going to do that. This is a 10-year connection that we've had. Let's go and see someone about this. And so we did. We did some therapy. We can give a few things, like go on, a, go on a couple of date days, plan some date days. And she planned this amazing date day. We hit the end of it where she got a hotel room here in downtown Vancouver. That it was going so well. The moment that I tried to interact with her physically, she said no. And that was that. We hit our second group session, and she started crying in the middle of it. And I looked at her and I said, does this feel like freedom to you? And she 
said yes. And they went, well, then we're done. I'm not going to chase you down through your own resistance to this relationship. I've been the best partner that I think I can be. And I asked her, I said, what could I do differently next time? And she said, nothing. We stayed together, uh, living in the same space until June, uh, because she needed to find a place to stay. And Vancouver is not an easy place to find an apartment. The day that she left, I went and sat by the river. And it was a beautiful sunny day. And I just waited. Graham waited for a few hours by the river as Sarah and her friends moved all of her stuff out. The first night's sleep was really tough. It was very much like trying to, you know, climb out of a well with slick walls. You look at it and think, how am I ever going to change this? How am I ever going to do anything differently? I only know how to be me, and I had what I thought was the love of my life. I can't do anything differently. It was tough to hear, but I think it was, I don't think that there was a truth that she could share with me that could be shared without being what she felt to be incredibly hurtful. And it probably actually would have been beneficial to hear it, but I don't think she was ready to tell it. It's kind of funny because the day that she moved out, she actually said, well, maybe we can go on some dates. And I turned to her and I said, no, I don't think we can. Um, I'm not going to halfway do this. A couple of weeks went by and we had a FaceTime call that did not go well. And I said at the end of it, do me a favor, lose my number. We'll talk in a year's time when it's time to sign the paperwork. This is not going to work for us. I did not hear from her at all, actually, until she popped up on my Instagram. She started a, a blog about mountain biking. She's taken up mountain biking, which I was like, it's great. I'm very cool and very happy to see that you're doing something that you love. So I immediately blocked her on Instagram because I just don't want to see my ex being happy. Not to say that she can't be happy, I just don't want to see it. I, I contacted her and I just said, hey, you know, I saw you pop on my Instagram. We need to talk about this paperwork. We need to get this done. And we had a separation agreement that we both agreed on. So it was really just a matter of getting the affidavit and then um, getting it signed. And I was expecting that fairly quickly. It hasn't showed up yet. But two weeks ago, she asked me to go for coffee. Uh, stood me up. That chapter, I think, is very much closed in my life. And I don't think I could or would reopen it. Basically, the moment that I said, lose my number. I turned the page on that, closed the box on it, and went, we're done here. Let's go figure out who I am now. So what do you do when you find out that you're not quite ex-wife has started a blog about mountain biking graham did what any gamer would do he turned to video games for comfort and for distraction and for a sense of safety destiny is probably the most uh destiny one and destiny two are probably the most prevalent um, because of the nature of the social connection with it i've got a, a a few core groups of friends that i play with there's my destiny clan sometimes bravo team who I have met one person in person. Everyone else is just a, a digital face or a, a Facebook profile. And then there is my other gaming group, the Crass Menagerie, little Tennessee Williams. And we've been playing everything from Team Fortress 2 to Dota to uh, Player Unknown Battlegrounds. We tend to play a lot of competitive games together, which they're great at and I am terrible at. But I like to think of myself as the equalizer. These guys are so good that they need—they basically need a boat anchor on the team to keep them down. That's the job that I fulfill. Typically play medic or healer or support. And that's very much the, the type of gaming experience that I find to be the most cathartic. 
I think you have to be at a particular place and time in your life in order to step into the role of medic or healer or support. You kind of prop everybody else up. You keep the team moving forward. That's the role that Graham wanted to be in. I think there is a lot about gaming that is empowering. There is no cost for failure. You can just hit a button and retry. There's also, there's growth that happens in most of these games. Whether it is actual stat growth, um, so your numbers get bigger in Diablo, or you get better. I think Graham has hit on something important here. It's leveling up. It's something we don't appreciate enough about video games. Leveling up, you, you leave behind earlier versions of ourselves, earlier versions of our avatars during the game, and we create a newer, more powerful version of ourselves, a version that's formidable enough to take on stronger, more powerful enemies. And once you get stronger, you can do things like open doors that you couldn't open before or lift stones that were blocking your path. You can see the growth that Graham's talking about even in an old game like uh, Super Mario Brothers where Mario eats a, a mushroom and he doubles in size and he becomes stronger, harder to bring down. One series of games over the course of the last year that when I've probably been my most frustrated has actually been a great experience for me has been the Dark Souls and Bloodborne series. I'm not great at them. But I beat them. And that was something where it really took time, analysis, skill, calm. But I actually did a time lapse of me beating uh, Dark Souls 1. It's funny because when I began this thing, I started so angry. And by the time I hit the end of it, it was very much a Zen master approach. Um, the final fight of Dark Souls 1, I beat in one try. And I kind of look at the camera at the end and I'm like, yeah, just did that. What's next? So in Destiny 1, uh, the Taken King expansion, when the King's Fall raid was released, uh, the, my team, sometimes Bravo team, went in blind. And I think that's probably the best way to experience Destiny raids, because if you're going in and you know the mechanics, you're just repeating what somebody else has done. But we went in, and over the course of probably about 12 hours, we figured out every step along the way. And this was spread, spread out over two nights. Uh, we got stopped at Golgoroth the first night, cracked the puzzle the very first hour the next night. Uh, but the most standout moment for me was actually beating Oryx. In the time before time, there were two. One of light and one of terrible darkness. And from that darkness crawled a name. Oryx, one of the greatest gods of the Hive Pantheon. Oryx is as tall as a building. And he's got shoulders that are about the wingspan of a 747. He's huge. Oryx has a face without expression. He looks like the distant cousin of Doom's cyber demon. Paul Davies, a Destiny expert, wrote, Oryx is one of the most awesome confrontations ever created in a video game. And in order to beat him, in order to bring down Oryx, you need hours of practice, channeled into minutes of near flawless execution. The battle against Oryx is one of the toughest fights in Destiny 1. That's Russ Frushtick from Polygon. 
a big Destiny player. People would essentially gather together and play for four, six hours straight and just sort of power their way through this increasingly difficult set of challenges, eventually culminating with this fight against Oryx, who is this giant space demon looking guy. And essentially you need six people all working perfectly in concert with one another to ensure that everything works out. Everyone needs to be listening. Everyone needs to be paying attention. Everyone needs to be dialed in because all it takes is one person kind of sleeping on the job and the whole thing just falls apart. I play a hunter and the joke in my clan is every time I see a destiny pu a jumping puzzle, anything, anything there's anything to do with jumping, they will hear a profanity-laced diatribe from me that lasts probably two to five minutes about how this is supposed to be a first-person shooter and not a goddamn Super Mario game. The, uh, the jumping puzzle in, uh, in Vault of Glass was just death after death after death. It got a little better in, in King's Fall with the, the tomb ships because I had boots that let you have four jumps instead of three, which I apparently needed back then. Getting a little better at it. <laughs> when we were fighting Oryx, we got our rhythm down to the point that we were able to do it except our last carrier to, to basically dunk the ball to make Oryx vulnerable. The guy just wasn't cutting it. And everyone else is bickering and, and I finally went, fine, I'll do it. And there was just this silence. And, and everyone went, like, for real? I'm like, yeah, let's do this. I'd love to say that the first attempt was successful. It took us probably four or five. But there was this final moment where we're sitting there. We got it, we're down to the final phase. He's almost dead. And we're sitting there and he's about to explode. You are awesome. Boom, there it is, that last moment of DPS. That was a perfect. And you perfect see the loot drop. You see? Positiva, positiva. Everyone's going crazy. Perfect, right? Right. It's just like six guys who have taken, you know, this puzzle that's been put together by, quite frankly, brilliant game designers. And we've, we've found the mechanics, we figured out our, our play style. We put this together, and all of a sudden, the biggest, baddest thing that we know of in the Destiny universe is floating out into orbit. His his corpse is about to make landfall. We won. the hand cannon, 314. I guess I could up. That was one of those moments where we went, yeah, this is, this is why we play the game. What did Graham learn from his fight with Oryx? Graham learned that he's not alone. He learned that he had friends, even if they're not in the same room with him. He had a reliable support network. He leveled up, he left old Graham behind. And finally, most importantly, he learned that nothing in the universe was too daunting for him. Uh, Graham, this is Mark. Mark, this is Graham. Go ahead, guys. Hey, Graham. How are you doing, man? That Mark on the phone, that's Mark Noseworthy. He was one of the executive producers on The Taken King, and he was the project lead on Destiny 2. How's it going? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Good. Yeah, I'm doing good. So, <laughs> Destiny 2. The, the funny thing is, I, in some cases, I wouldn't know these people to see them, but I, I know them from their play style. Like, I don't even need to see their, their, their name on the screen to know that that's Keith over there. He's, he's always clutch. You know, and the score is tight and crucible. And, like, my friend Jacob, he's always going to find a way to live when the rest of us die in a raid. For clarity's sake, Graham is talking about his sometimes Bravo team team members. My friend Blake always comes to my rescue when I'm guardian down. Like, it's, these, are, these, are, these are things that 
they're relationships that have formed this bond through this game. You know, like when you're 80 or whatever, you're not going to remember the story to the original Destiny, right? But you'll remember when you got Calhorns, right? Um, <laughs> like there's these moments you have with your friends that you'll like never forget. One of the things we're trying to do is just create a game that brings people together and creates memories. People think Destiny is about becoming more powerful and collecting exotic weapons and shooting monsters in the face. And of course, all those things happen. But like for us, Destiny is about collecting memories. At the beginning of Destiny 2, we wanted to say like, hey, here are things that we remember about you and, 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 and get people to, to go on that nostalgic trip yeah. just before they're about to start a new adventure. It was really important for us to just like let people know, like, hey, we're, you, know, you might be starting a new game and you're going to be starting at level one. And the thing that really matters is uh, the friendships that you've made. You know, I went through the Destiny 2 campaign. We all played solo in the campaign, but we were all in voice chat with each other talking about it. The thing that got me is it actually kind of mirrored what I went through. At the end of Destiny 1, I was at the top of my, I was at the top of my game. We were beating raids. We had the best gear, um, which is sort of where my life was, um, you know, about a year and a half ago. And then something tragic happens, and you're kind of starting again. That, that one section at the beginning of Destiny 2 where you're kind of limping through the city really felt what, I, what my life felt like last June. Coming through it, you know, there, there is hope, and on the other side, there are your friends, and there is this wonderful experience that is the rest of your life. It very much was something that spoke to me. I mean, I guess the most important thing that I want to say to you and to the team is thank you for something that really has been fun and inspiring along the way and really has made uh, wonderful friendships for me. Thank you. It means a lot to us. You know, like we, we're making this game for people like you, you know, and, and, and your friends and, and we're just trying to provide a little uh, a little joy for people and uh, it, it means a lot to hear that, um, you know, that, that we get through. Nothing compares to like that human connection and hearing it from somebody and hearing it firsthand and that's awesome. Like, you know, definitely pass on the message. I'm actually on group chat with my guild right now. So Mark, uh, sometimes Bravo team wants to say hi and they want to say thank you as well. handle online typically is 3PO, T-H-R-E-E-P-I-O, and so that's on Xbox Live, Instagram, and on Twitter. Um, if anybody out there is looking for a, a round of Destiny 2, uh, you can find me on there uh, as Roger Wilco, which is kind of funny because that's actually, that handle came from my very first memorable gaming experience ever. Roger Wilco being the hero of the Space Quest series, and when I was five years old, I played Space Quest 2, and that changed my life forever. Bit of an update for you. The divorce from Sarah is finally final, and Graham is seeing someone new. All the best to Graham. And of course, Graham is still playing video games he just devoured. That's his word, God of War. And he's replaying Bloodborne boss by boss. And Graham is still very much playing Destiny. He's looking forward to the Forsaken DLC, which will be out in September 2018. Couple shout-outs from Graham, Jeff Sobel, aka Palago, Jacob Medley, and Blake Reinhardt. Special thanks to Mark Noseworthy, Sarah Deacons, Stephen Nikolic, Poddington Bear, and Kristovsky, and Scott Holmes, and to the Free Music Archive, which provided all the tracks on today's show. Thanks also to composers for Destiny 2, Michael Salvatore, Sky Lewin, C. Paul Johnson, Rotem Moav, and Peter Schlosser. 
Until next time, I'm Scott C. Jones. I'll see you then.